Heavenly Father, we do know that you satisfy and overwhelm our souls with your goodness and your grace and all the blessings that come from knowing you and seeing you and experiencing you in your word and in the world that you've made. But the one thing that we want to satisfy and overwhelm our souls today is you, your person, your being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we want you to come into this room and to be present with us and for your name to be magnified and glorified and exalted in what we see in the scriptures today, knowing that it is only in seeing and embracing the object of the gospel that we love and embrace that we are able to proclaim that same gospel. And you are the object of that gospel, Father, Jesus and Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, I ask this, amen. Um, we have been, uh, for the last several weeks, in uh, Paul's second letter to uh, Timothy, uh, who he refers to as his beloved uh, child. And we've heard this reverberating call throughout this letter uh, for Timothy and for all of us to, to not be ashamed, but rather to share in suffering for the sake of the gospel. Paul is exhorting us in this letter to embrace the calling that is on our lives to be bold witnesses for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the sake of, of his glory, for the sake of his name in this world, no matter what the cost is, no matter if it's reputation or safety or, or whatever that might look like. Um, now, this doesn't mean, and I hope that this has been clear week to week, this doesn't necessarily mean that we, we are uh, discretionless when it comes to whether or not we preach the gospel, where we share the gospel, when we share the gospel. Obviously, we operate with discretion with regard to that. However, fear is never the driving factor in our discretion which is why Paul says, do not be ashamed. And he says this not from a place of ignorance about the cost of preaching the gospel. He says this while he is in chains and while he is awaiting his execution. This is the heartbeat of 2 Timothy. This is what we've been staring into the face of for the last several weeks. We are called to embrace the cost of following Jesus, not to run from it, but to share in suffering for the sake of the gospel and not be ashamed of what Christ has done for us. Last week, uh, Paul made this even more clear with the command to remember Jesus Christ. If you guys remember that, uh, Paul said, remember Jesus risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. And this is just a, 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 a resurfacing of the same theme we've seen every week from week to week. And it won't change as we go deeper in the letter. Hate to, I mean, spoiler alert, he keeps the same theme going. It only gets more precise, more intense, louder, and uh, the glory of it and the beauty of it in Paul's own life shines brighter and brighter. And we're going to see it shine brighter today. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. 2 Timothy 2, 14. We're going to read through the next six verses and unpack them like we usually do. Paul says here, verse 14, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth but avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Paul begins here by telling Timothy to remind them of these things and to charge them before God. 
And the them here, just for clarification, are all those who Timothy has under his care as a pastor, as an elder in the church at Ephesus. This is his church. This is his people, the Ephesian believers. And uh, the same people that Timothy has been apparently been caring for since Paul's first letter to him, where he said, listen, remain in Ephesus to do what he's telling him to do here. Paul's telling him, listen, your job is to remind them and to charge them before God. That's really what the ministry of preaching is. It's what I, what I do every week when I'm up here. My job isn't to lecture. My job isn't even to educate. You guys know this stuff already. My job is to remind you of these things and to charge you before God with his word. This is what preaching is. And so, so preaching isn't, isn't a light matter. You can just see it in the language that Paul uses here. And this is why not only is preaching not a light matter, <clears throat> but listening to preaching is not a light matter. Listening to, teach, to, to, to preaching is being charged before God to hear, receive, and obey everything that is consistent with God's word that comes from the preacher's mouth. So Timothy is to remind his people of these things, things which Paul has mentioned throughout the entire letter. And I think it's fascinating because this validates, of course, what we've been saying every week, which is that this letter isn't just for Timothy and for pastors on his staff. This letter is for every believer, not just those who are in full-time ministry, those who are evangelists. And here's the evidence. Remind them of these things. Don't leave them out of the equation. They're part of this. Remind them it's for all of them. Then he says, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. It's important to see here this word ruin. It's not playing games. It's where we get our word catastrophe. In fact, the Greek word for ruin is almost identical to catastrophe. The only difference is the C is a K. Um, and it literally means in the Greek to be overthrown or to be destroyed. It's, it's this serious, the, the, the command that Paul's giving here. He doesn't want the church in Ephesus to quarrel about words. And we're going to see what that means. That actually has a very specific meaning in, uh, uh, in this passage today. Um, but what I want to do is I want to press on to his next command to Timothy, and then we'll come back to what quarrel with words actually means. Verse 15, he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker, Timothy, who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, Paul is commanding Timothy to present himself, as he does this ministry, to God as one who is approved. This, 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 this means one who has stood the test in trials and rigors of ministry and been faithful to his his ministry, and has come out of the fire refined and proven. He's approved. That's the kind of language that Paul's using here. And what's interesting is that throughout this letter, Paul's been telling Timothy, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. But here he says, I mean, the implication is you should be ashamed if you don't teach God's word accurately. He is to be zealous in his efforts. Do your best. Be zealous is the word in the Greek to rightly handle the word of truth, to preach it faithfully, consistently with the mind and heart of God for these people. So Paul says, for your sake, Timothy, and for the sake of the people that you teach, never, ever, ever mishandle God's word. And this isn't the first time that he's done this. He did this in in Timothy's first letter to him, and I'm sure he did it in person with Timothy many times. It's one of the most profound themes. And the, the heaviest statement that Paul makes about this is in 1 Timothy 4.16. Let me read this to you, where he says, I mean, many times he does this with, with, with Timothy. I'm like, you're, you're my, you're, I'm your beloved child. Why are you telling me this stuff? Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save yourself and your hearers. That's bigger than a pep talk on Sunday morning. There's saving that is going on right now in this room. By the power of the Holy Spirit, through God's grace, that's what happens 
when believers come and receive the word. It's not trivial. It is massive. And it's both for Timothy and for those under his teaching. <laughs> That's what Paul says here. Um, and and I, I'm going to be real with you. I, I feel the weight of this every, every time we get together on Saturday. And throughout the week, I feel the weight of this. And I would admonish you, you all, that when you find a church in the future after Risen Hope completes its course, and you must find one, you must find one, um, and I'll help you. I'll give you some pointers to good churches in our area. But when you find one, find one with a pastor who trembles at the word of God. Find one with a pastor who is terrified of the idea of mishandling God's word. Because this book deals with eternal reality. It's not about making people feel better. It's not about making people feel better about their own lives or, or have helpful tips about how they can live. This is about meeting with God. I mean, the, the author of Hebrews says it probably the weightiest in the entire Bible. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. This is what happens when we get, I feel it in my bones. I feel it in my soul. Um, so it's, it's no joke. Paul continues here, moving from what Timothy must do as a pastor, as a teacher, as a preacher, to what he must never do. Verse 16, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. So this is what Timothy must avoid. Paul calls it here irreverent babble, which is strange. We don't use those words very often. What is he talking about there? Well, literally in the Greek, it means empty talk, empty talk. And if all we had were those two words to sort of understand what he's referring to here, we would be, we would be left to our own speculation, but praise God, it's not. Um, the mentioning here of a reverent babble by Paul isn't the first time that he's brought this up with Timothy. In fact, <clears throat> he's brought this up multiple times. The idea here, this irreverent babble, is the same false teaching that Paul actually addressed in 1 Timothy in the first epistle to his beloved child. And we know that it's the, the same uh, issue because he uses the same exact language in both letters to describe and define this false teaching. In fact, one of the clearest connections to this, this one in 2 Timothy that we just read is in, uh, at the very end of 1 Timothy. You can actually probably flip over and see it. In the very last few verses, he says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Then he says, avoid irreverent babble, the irreverent babble, and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Earlier in that letter and later in 2 Timothy, we will see words like myths and endless genealogies promoting speculations and vain discussions. So the, the, the idea is that there's this irreverent babble, this empty talk that is called knowledge by the people who are foisting it on believers, but in reality, it's not knowledge. It's just foolishness. And Paul's telling Timothy, listen, avoid this because it's going to lead people away from Jesus. It's going to cause people to swerve from the faith. In fact, in verse 16 here in 2 Timothy 2, he says it leads people into more and more ungodliness and their talk spreads like gangrene, which is graphic language, like this festering, destroying sore on the church. But all of these terms that Paul's used, and even the terms that I mentioned from both epistles, they're, they're really only descriptors. They don't get to the heart of the teaching, which we read when we read this passage. Um, Paul in verse 17 makes it very clear what the core of this teaching is, what the problem is with this, the main doctrinal deviation when he calls out two specific offenders of this harmful teaching. He says here in verse 17, among them, among people who have swerved from the faith, are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So he calls out these two individuals, uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus. 
The first one is a repeat offender. That's the first thing we need to know when we look at this. This is not the first time Paul has actually engaged Hymenaeus. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, Paul commands Timothy, listen, he says, wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. And then he says, by rejecting this, by rejecting the command that I just gave you, Timothy, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's heavy. So Hymenaeus was in 1 Timothy. Paul says he's made shipwreck of his faith. He's left and done his own thing. Um, evidently in 2 Timothy, he's got a new henchman. <laughs> it's no longer Alexander, it's Philetus. Don't know what happened to Alexander. Um, but Hymenaeus is the common thread here between these two letters. Paul says here that he's handed over Hymenaeus to Satan that he may learn not to blaspheme. And what he means here is this is church discipline. Hymenaeus was teaching something that was destructive, eternally destructive. And so Paul released him from the community of believers in Ephesus, both for their safety and for his repentance. He removed him from the body of believers and this was not only to protect the church, but I mean, it was for Hymenaeus to learn not to blaspheme God because only when he's removed from the church body, the, the grace of Christian fellowship and given over to Satan, can he see the error in his ways. He's unrepentantly re, you know, swerved from the truth. And the only way for him to be brought back to the truth is for him to be given over to the enemy. In 1 Corinthians, they describe this as the destruction of his flesh so that his soul could be saved. But it's tragically clear in 2 uh, Timothy that he hasn't learned his lesson yet. He's teaching that the resurrection has already happened and uh, it's upsetting the faith of some. This word upsetting, uh, we, we trivialize this word upset to, to make something feel, you know, a little, little bit of un unrest or, or frustration. This is weak compared to the Greek meaning. The Greek meaning of upset here is to overthrow or subdue. It's imagine a boat getting capsized by a wave. That's what Hymenaeus and Philetus are doing in the church at Ephesus, and they've been doing it, as we'll come to find out in our studies, and as is readily apparent in 1 uh, Timothy, by twisting the scriptures and reinterpreting the Christian life. They claim as others have in 1 Corinthians, this claim is made that the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age has already happened. And therefore, there is nothing beyond this life. We are in the resurrection age. And therefore, live your best life now. Enjoy the fruits of this life right now. And what's pernicious about this is they're using these Old Testament texts and these endless genealogies, these myths, these fanciful ideas to argue that the present life is all that we have. That's what it means for the resurrection to have already happened. It's a statement that we don't have anything beyond now to hope in. And this is violently antithetical to the gospel. This is so antagonistic to the gospel. Keep in mind, these are people who would openly confess that Jesus is Lord they would say that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. Paul never mentions any issues with that doctrine. And they would say that, that, that you know, they, they would confess all the things that Paul would confess except for the hope of the resurrection, the hope of the gospel. And what that means is that this isn't a gospel at all that they're holding out. It is simply a ruse that is corrupting the people of God, which is why Paul tells Timothy, listen, at the beginning he said, don't charge them before God. Don't let them quarrel about words. He's referring to quarrels that would happen with these teachers and their followers. We're going to see why, because it breeds quarreling. He doesn't want the church in Ephesus to argue because he knows that it's only going to lead to more and more ungodliness and ultimately the ruin of everyone who's listening to it. And Paul's going to give us next week, God willing, a way in which we can deal with false teachers. He tells Timothy specifically how to engage uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus. But what's important right here, and what I wanna focus on today is 
just to recognize what's so destructive about what they're teaching in Ephesus and show you how it relates to Paul's command from the very beginning to not be ashamed of the gospel. Um, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, the, the, the deepest probably uh, unpacking of this broken eschatology about the resurrection is explained. So I want you to look at this as I read this because it's important for you to see how this doctrine can lead people away from Jesus. I mean, it sounds like it's just they have a misunderstanding about a future event. That's not what this is. Um, it's horrific and dangerous. 1 Timothy 6.3, Paul says to Timothy, listen, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels <coughs> about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Here it is. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is what Paul's dealing with. This is what Timothy's dealing with. This is what it is at the core. The, the denial of a future resurrection for the saints means that we must have it all in this life because there's nothing beyond this life. It's a philosophy that says, maybe you've heard of this, you only live once or have your best life now. And it hasn't changed. Maybe the, the underworkings, the underpinnings have changed, but that philosophy still has sway in this world. And this wasn't just some strange take on the resurrection. It was that, but it was more than that. It was a culture of life in the church that saw godliness as a means to get what they really wanted, which wasn't God. It was riches, power, pleasure. We're going to see that later on. And Paul says here, no, 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 no. Godliness with contentment is great gain. To pursue anything in this world as the ultimate goal of one's soul, anything that we have physically in this world outside of God is to invite utter devastation into your life. It's to wander away from the faith and it is to be plunged in an ocean of ruin and destruction and ultimately to be pierced with many, many, many pangs. And Paul says, I would spare you that. It's horrific and it's creating contention in the church from the people who don't accept it. They're like angry about it. It breeds quarrels, it breeds envy, it breeds dissension because it so forcefully opposes the one thing these people are basing their lives on, the hope of the resurrection. And so you can imagine the situation that Timothy's in right now, getting this letter from Paul. Think about it, Paul's about to be executed. Paul is gonna tell Timothy, listen, I want you to come to me one last time. I wanna see you with my own eyes one last time come. But in the, in the middle of his church in Ephesus, there's this false teaching that is infecting and afflicting these people, creating animosity, creating infighting. And what's worse is that these men, Hymenaeus and Philetus, know the Bible enough to twist it and to make it say what they want it to say. So you can see why Paul's exhorting Timothy, <coughs> excuse me, to not be ashamed of the gospel this is why he spent most of his time in this letter pointing to the power of the gospel and the need for him to proclaim it, him to handle the word of God rightly, like his life depended on it. It's because Timothy 
there are wolves in the sheepfold and they are devouring the sheep. This is precisely what Paul warned back in Acts 20 when he gathered the Ephesian elders, the same church's leadership in Miletus. Timothy was there. He gathers them. He's about to get on the boat. He's about to say goodbye to them. He doesn't know if he's going to see them again. And this is one of the commands he gives them. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Because I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That's what's happening. Paul told them there, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. The Spirit has made you overseers, shepherds of the church of God, a church that, that he bought with the blood of his own son. And he says, do this. You need to pay careful attention because after I leave, wolves are gonna come in and they're not gonna spare the flock. And that even in the same group of men, he is staring in the face as he says this, wolves are in this group. They're going to rise up and speak twisted, false things in order to gain disciples. This is 2 Timothy. And you, you even wonder, <laughs> as I was preparing, I was like, I wonder if Hymenaeus was there. I wonder if he was one of the men on the you know, in Miletus, hearing this message from Paul. And he's one of the ones he was talking about. We don't know for sure, but he definitely fits the category. So how, how does Paul encourage Timothy despite all of these factors? Well, he does it with the passage that we looked at. We peaked at last week, verse 19, uh, when we were unpacking verse 13. He encourages Timothy by pointing to God's faithfulness. So look at this, verse 19. He says, I know this is upsetting the faith of some in your church, but listen to me, verse 19. God's firm foundation stands, Timothy, bearing this seal. The seal is two statements. First, the Lord knows those who are his. And second, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. One of the things we said about this last week is that this foundation is a testament to God's faithfulness. First, the fact that God knows those who are his. He's not fooled by Hymenaeus. He's not fooled by Philetus or any of these guys who follow him. He knows those who belong to him and nothing they do or say in their wildest dreams can thwart his plans. It's completely sovereign over all this. And therefore, Timothy should not be fearful of anything that's going on around him as much as his heart tempts him to fear because God is in control. God is in control. I know it looks like it's falling apart. Imagine yourself there. And we think that Christianity is going through a number in 21st century America. It is a small flame on a candle. And they trust God's in control but there's this fear. We need to hear this. This is important for us to hear because, I mean, how often does this happen to us when things don't go a specific way and we think all hope is lost? We're like, well, how are we gonna fix this? It's impossible. But Paul says here, no, God knows who are his. He's in control. Like we saw last week, Christ is faithful. If you belong to him, he's gonna get you home. He paid for you and he's bringing what he bought home. The other facet, the second statement here in God's firm foundation isn't just God's sovereign preservation of his people, which is true. It's also the perseverance of God's people through active holiness, that everyone who names the name of the Lord would depart from iniquity, that they would, as 1 Peter says, die to their sin and live to righteousness. This is how God does it. This is how God preserves his people. It's through holiness. Not a, a, a reluctant, you know, begrudging, mechanical obedience, but a sincere desire in the center of your being 
to please God and to, and to make much of him, of, of Christ and of the gospel, to be unashamed. Last week, we, we made the connection between uh, the firm foundation of verse 19 and the faithfulness of Christ, like I said, of verse 13, where it says Christ uh, is always faithful even when we're faithless. Why is that? Well, Paul says, because he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny himself. He knows who he is and he refuses to deny that glory. So think about that for a moment. Christ's faithfulness, this firm foundation, his, his faithfulness to himself, his refusal to deny himself, his commitment to who he is, that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. That's what it means for him to be faithful. That's what it means for him to be holy and righteous. He refuses to dishonor his name. Doesn't matter. He won't. He refuses. And this is essentially what a definition of holiness is. You want to get all the way down to the bottom of holiness. It's not just doing specific things, although it will entail that. Holiness is refusing to dishonor God's name. And anything you do, say, think, it's faithfulness to who God really is. It's not just, you know, checking boxes. It's not just following a list of things to do. It is a commitment to God from our hearts, from the Holy Spirit working in our hearts what is pleasing in his sight, a commitment to making God's glory primary in everything we do, everything, every motivation in our lives. Paul, at this point in the text, wants to use a picture to communicate the reality of holiness in the church. And um, I mean, a, lot, a few weeks ago, he used the picture of the, the soldier, the athlete, you guys remember that, and the farmer. Paul likes drawing pictures to, to, to send these things deep into Timothy's mind and his heart. So here in verse 20 and 21, he's gonna use a picture of a house to show us why holiness matters. It's a very important picture. Look at this, verse 20. Paul says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. This is a profound illustration of what it means to be holy. And we're not, <clears throat> excuse me, we're not, um, uh, you know, ignorant of the fact that the Bible oftentimes uses in the New Testament um, a house to describe God's people. Uh, we actually see it illustrated over and over across the New Testament. I mean, Hebrews 3 is probably one of the best, clearest examples where the author says, Christ is, is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house he says, if we indeed hold fast our confidence in the boasting in our hope. That's the hope of the resurrection, which is why Paul's making a big deal about this. Um, it's directly connected to being in the house of God. And in Paul's letter to, to, to the Ephesians, this is Timothy's church, prior to Timothy being the pastor there, he's already told them in chapter two of, uh, of Ephesians, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built like a house on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place. It's a house for God by the spirit. These words that Paul's using here in Ephesians 2, structure, temple, dwelling place, they're, they're keying in on what he's saying here in 2 Timothy. It's all house language. And what Paul's saying in 2 Timothy is, listen, when you go to a great house, what happens is you see different vessels. Some of them are gold and silver and some of them are wood and clay. But here's the thing about the vessels, Timothy, you need to get. Each of these vessels has a different function. But the quality of the vessels, whether they're gold and silver or whether they're wood and clay, isn't contingent on something in itself, but rather on its function, whether it's honorable or dishonorable. 
by the master of the house. And so their function is not based on any intrinsic worth in the vessel itself. The vessel doesn't come to the master and all of a sudden he's like, oh yeah, perfect. I can use you for this or for that. That's not the way this house is described. The usefulness is determined or the, 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 the status of the vessel is determined by its usefulness to the master of the house. What makes you fit for honorable use isn't your skill or your intellect or your capabilities. God can use those or not. He doesn't need them. Like we think of Christianity as like God being a coach and trying to fill out his roster. That's not the way it works. And if he was filling out his roster, he's, he's not using the same metrics that the world is using usefulness is what determines whether or not a vessel is honorable to the master or not. And what Paul says here is that usefulness is contingent on one factor, holiness. Cleanse yourself. Cleanse yourself, he says. He's like, listen, 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 Timothy, the house of God is filled with many vessels. Some of them are very useful. Some of them are useless. They might be physically in the house, but they're not going to be there forever. Your job, Timothy, is to make yourself very useful to the master. Your job is to get the, 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 the people in your congregation that you teach to, to recognize the need for their lives to be useful for the purposes of the master. And the pathway to usefulness, Timothy, is holiness. It's cleansing oneself of everything that would rob them of the ability to embrace the call of Christ on their lives, even if it comes to you at a great cost. This is really what, I mean, if you go back and listen to how we've sort of gone through this text in 2 Timothy, it's what Paul's been saying at the beginning. He's been saying this repeatedly every, every week. And it's why Hymenaeus' teaching is so wicked because it, it, it literally guts any effort at Christian obedience by attempting to nullify the hope of the resurrection that rewards Christian obedience. I mean, why would anybody want to share in suffering for the sake of the gospel if this is all that I have? What does it matter? Save them for what? Give my life for what? That's the point. That's why he's fighting against this. This is the very first chapter he's been dealing with this. If there's no hope in the resurrection that we can trust in, there's no reason for us to give our lives to the Lord in the way that he's called us to. And it's completely contrary to what Jesus teaches. Seek first the kingdom of God. I mean, it's so opposing everything that we know of in the gospel about how we should give our lives like Christ gave his life. Um, Paul, even in 1 Corinthians, I mean, we were looking at this in, during Easter. He, he uh, I can't, can't remember if it was you, Nikki, that preached in this, but, or me, or I can't remember, but um, he says, listen, if there's no resurrection from the dead, we should all eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. He's like, I've suffered too much in this world for what he has promised to be false. And that's what he's saying here. The truth of the matter and the truth of the gospel is that there is a coming resurrection of the dead. It's as certain as the past and the present, and one day it will be present with us. There is a coming resurrection of the dead, and the Christian hope in that resurrection is absolutely critical. It's what drives people to give their lives on the mission field. It's what drives people like you and I to be willing to part with anything in our lives that keeps us from showing Christ. And what makes this false teaching so appealing is something that you and I all know very intimately. Every single person in this room and every single person on this planet outside of this room has felt this before. It's called discontentment discontentment. Remember what Paul said earlier in 1 Timothy 6, these false teachers were imagining godliness, doing right things, not doing wrong things, as a means of gain. And the gain that they had in mind wasn't eternal life with God. The gain they had in mind was money, riches, 
power, pleasure. Paul's response to that is no. Godliness with contentment isn't a means for great gain. It is great gain with contentment. And so this false teaching is really fueled by discontentment. That's why it's so appealing to people. Yeah, I don't like the fact that I'm poor. I don't like the fact that I don't have what you have. I don't like the fact that I feel this way or you know, I want these things that you have and therefore I'm gonna live this certain life because that's what he's promising me. And Paul's saying no. And really at the, at the, at the core, the center of, 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 of discontentment, if you were to peel back the layers of discontentment and covetousness, which is just discontentment with words and thinking thoughts and, uh, and envy, when you look at the center of what that is, it really is idolatry. Something deep in us has been dethroned and, or, or something deep in us where God should be seated and honored and cherished. He has been dethroned and something else is there. It's when great gain isn't found in knowing God and being with him, but in whatever he can give me in this life. That's the heart of the issue. And the reason Paul points to holiness here isn't because he's just trying to give people a list of things to do. That's not at all the reason. He points to holiness because of the reason he's defined holiness, which is faithfulness to Jesus no matter what. Seeing Jesus as your treasure. He said in verse 13, if we are faithless, Christ remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. So faithfulness to Christ is refusing to deny him for anything. That's the essence of holiness, complete and total allegiance to God because God is simply more beautiful than anything else in this world. Discontentment in our lives will never, ever, ever be quenched outside of finding contentment in God alone. Finding our true and ultimate contentment in him because godliness with contentment is great gain. And that only rings true if you can look with the eyes of your heart at God and at Christ Jesus and say, there's my treasure. There's my treasure. I think the, the best text to sort of illustrate this whole panorama of experience is 1 Peter 2, where Peter says, listen, as you come to Christ, as you believe in him, as you trust him, as you start to see him as the worthy treasure he is, as you come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. There's house language again. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices expect, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is essentially what Paul's telling Timothy. He's saying, our holiness is seeing Christ like God sees Christ, precious, chosen, more important to, than anything else in the world. Someone who is worth giving up everything in our lives for if we can just have him. And we see that most clearly in what Peter says, in the rejection of that living stone, we see his worth. It's in the cross that we see the worth of Jesus laying down his, lives to his life to redeem our lives from sin and from death. It's when we see the gospel, the fact that the master of the house doesn't just sit in the house looking at vessels, he goes out and he dies so that the vessels can be gold and silver, so that they can be used for honorable use, so that they can be beautiful in his sight. And these vessels aren't just beautiful in his sight. These vessels are beautiful because they are willing to give their lives for the master and for the sake of others who desperately need to know him. It's in seeing the cross for what it truly is and taking the reality of the gospel every day and pouring that reality on our hearts that we start to become preoccupied and in love with the master of the house. And we just we don't obey because we have to. We obey because we are in love with him and we desire nothing more in our lives than to be useful for, for the master of the house. That's holiness. That's what holiness looks like. 
And when I considered how to close our time together today, I, I was, God continued to bring me to a, a text um, that many of, of you guys know already because I've quoted some of it over the last four years, <clears throat> but it's a psalm that engages the, the danger and the peril of discontentment through a man named Asaph, the writer of the psalm, Psalm 73. Uh, and he is experiencing discontentment as he surveys the people in his life and sees that the wicked and the, the rich have no pains in this life. They seem to be doing fine, even when they're cursing God. And he, he's like, what's the deal? He's not rich. He's not wicked, but he's struggling with discontentment and it's gonna lead him far away from God unless he does something about it and he does something about it. And what I wanna do here is I'm not gonna provide a lengthy exposition of this text. I'm simply gonna read this Psalm and I want you to go there with Asaph. I want you to be, it's a short, I mean, it's not super short, but it's short journey in his life where he was very close to rejecting God because of what he saw and where God took him by the hand and showed him something much better. And I want you to feel it as we read it. So please listen closely. <clears throat> Psalm 73. Asaph says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people, God's very people, turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain, Asaph says, have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, if I, had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, the house of God. Then I discern their end. Truly, he says to God, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Why is that? Why is Asaph with him? He says, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. That's called holiness. That's the antidote to discontentment. That's the antidote to any inclination in our hearts 
to be ashamed of the gospel. I will speak of all your works. Well, why is that? Because I see God as the treasure that he actually is. It is in recognizing that God is worth more than anything in this world. Not just saying it with our mouths, because we can say that. It's in doing everything we can to feel it in our hearts and then proceed to live as though it is true that, that from the depths of my soul, I say, whom have I in heaven but you, Father? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. They're gonna fail one day, but God is the strength of my heart. You're the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That statement is spoken by the one who is useful to the master of the house. The one whose life has been gripped by the gospel of grace, seeing the living stone rejected for his sake and transformed by it, that, that though Christ, as it says in 1 Corinthians, was infinitely rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we by his poverty on that tree might become rich with him. Obedience to the command, do not be ashamed, that Paul has been giving in 2 Timothy, will never happen in our lives in any meaningful way if we do not see the object of the gospel that we are not to be ashamed of. We need to see him as he really is, infinitely worthy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know that all that's been going on here as I've been talking about what we see in 2 Timothy 2 are words that I feel you've given me over this week by the Spirit for them to be communicated to my friends here and myself by the Spirit. And right now what we need more than anything else is for the Spirit to continue his work of taking the hardened sand of our hearts. And I know this is true of me. I've been <laughs> dealing with this text all week and just recognizing the areas where I need this spoken into my life over and over and over again. Dig up the, the hard sand of our souls, Father God, and breathe your spirit on that ground and plant the seed of your worth in that soil so that it grows into an oak that can proclaim the words of God, that can say with Asaph, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you that my flesh and heart can fail tomorrow. And I will say, God is my strength, the strength of my heart, and he will be my portion into endless ages. I plead with you, Father God, that you would be able to give us that word, that statement, that sentence, that proclamation, not just as a phrase that we can say and hope for, but as something we feel pumping through our hearts. That the object of the gospel, Christ Jesus, who will bring us to his Father, is the greatest treasure in the world and is worth dying for for the sake of the gospel. I ask that you'd help us feel that today, Father. In the name of Jesus, amen.